0: There's really no excuse to have really high-end gear if you're selling your recordings to, I mean, my stuff is in Skywalker Sounds Library, in every major game studio, you know, Warner Brothers, stuff like that. So I can't, in good conscience, record that stuff with a $200 handheld Zoom.
1: Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Bill's manager, Anand Harsh. I'm also editor-in-chief of TheUnce.com. If you're lucky enough to catch this show the day it's dropping or right after, Bill is headed to northern Wisconsin for a socially distanced drive-in show with Ganja White Knight on the 30th. If you're lucky, tickets might still be available, but these are super limited capacity events, so you might be shit out of luck. Bill's guest today is Ivo Ivanov. He's the CEO and founder of Glitch Machines, but has had an incredible career in and around music technology. He's done sound design and development for Ableton, Native Instruments, Twisted Tools, and Skywalker Sound, and worked with Derek Carter, Otto Von Schirach, Richard Devine, and Trent Reznor. He's worked with SAE in San Francisco and Pyramind and done all sorts of education work. And now you'll get to hear a fun and informative interview with him. Speaking of informative, Bill has a new video on making insane subs that's up on his YouTube channel. So go check that out. And thanks to everyone supporting the show and keeping us going on our Patreon. You can get early access to episodes, bonus content. There's some exclusive merch uh, that's available here and there and you get a nice warm feeling in your tummy every time you listen to the show you can subscribe at patreon.com slash mrbills tunes finally please head over to mrbills tunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore able you get full access to bill's project files and tutorials access to nearly 30 sample packs and so much more all right here's bill's chat with evo Ivanov. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.
2: Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.
1: Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. You are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.
2: Um, cool you recording
0: yeah everything's recording I think we're uh, we're good to go
2: sick well yeah thanks for doing this man I appreciate it um, thanks for
0: having me I'm a big fan of yours I, we've known each other for what like 10 years now
2: yeah a long time yeah, yeah. I think the first time I met you was in 2012 when I was in San Francisco for a show or something and you were teaching at the SAE campus
0: yeah 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 so it was it was like eight years ago yeah yeah, that it's been a while. <laughs> well, you've yeah. you've been a, a I mean even before we met, you've been an inspiration and I've watched all of your uh your videos and everything. So, it's it's awesome to to be on and to chat with you.
2: That's crazy to hear cuz I mean like when I look at someone like you, I look at you as sort of like at the top of the sort of sound design game. So, like to have someone like you watching my videos is crazy. I, think. That's awesome. <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I guess that's how you get to the top of the sound design game, right? It's just by watching everyone's videos.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody always like, you know, asked me how, how did you do it? And I don't have one answer for that. I think it's kind of probably like how you got to where you are with uh, music production. You just kind of learn as you go. And I got an, uh, a formal audio engineering degree. And then I also had the opportunity to teach for like five years in an audio engineering school which is where we met mm. and through all that I I did learn a tremendous amount but I, I think it it goes back a lot further than that and I, I'm sure we can dig into that today so excited to kind of get into it.
2: Yeah so just to um, kind of intro you a bit for people who don't know you your name is Ivo Ivanov as we just talked about, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, you're the founder of CEO, uh, the founder and CEO of Glitch Machines, which is a plugin company that I really like. I use Fracture a ton. Um, cool. So you've released probably like ten plugins now, uh, something yeah. like that, and a bunch mm-hmm. of sound packs. Um, you've done sound design for a ton of companies like Ableton, Native Instruments, Tip Top, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've done sound design on some games like Battlestar Galactica and We Happy Few. Yeah. Uh, you taught at SAE in San Francisco, where you were the campus director and the head of the audio tech program. Um, yeah. You were a touring keyboard player for Snake River Conspiracy. You released albums on Detroit Underground Records. And you were a circuit bending pioneer. And you've made instruments for Trent Reznor and Richard Devine and Otto von Sirach and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just crazy, man, how many accolades you have to your oh. name in, in the sound design world
0: thank you thank you i think part part of that is cuz i'm old <laughs> just being being around for so long but yeah it it's just something that um that i've been putting all of my time and effort into and it's not just me my whole family is kind of on the sidelines you know doing their part and making all of it happen and um i just kind of never never stop just like you i mean when i when i see <laughs> the amount of tracks you write it's so humbling cuz Music's an area that kind of got me into sound design, but it's also the least pursued or developed, for lack of a better term, area of the things that I do because it's always kind of been an avenue that hasn't really been a viable way to earn money for me. But it's something I'm passionate about, and it's actually how I got into audio in the first place. And Mm -hmm. now that things are kind of at a point where my sound design career is established. I am taking a little bit of a turn toward music again in my spare time, which is very lacking to say the least. But um, when I watch how much music you're able to create and how amazing it is to, you know, to boot, it's an inspiration, man. And it's intimidating to be totally honest. So I can see how people probably view my accolades and my portfolio because it's how I view others like yours and various other people that I'm a fan of. And I think all of us probably just have one thing in common, and it's that we work really hard at what we do. Beyond the fact that we're passionate about it and all that, it's really like whether we were successful or not, it's still something we would live and breathe. And I think that is kind of what it takes to get to that level.
2: Right. Yeah, I feel the same way for sure. I definitely think um, you kind of need this like uh, it's just stupid level of passion for something that I think um, the way I feel about it uh, is the only way to get, like, really successful in anything is if you would do it um, beyond anybody, like, telling you or paying you to do it anyway. Like, you just become sort of obsessive about it, and that's how you, like, get really good at it, right?
0: Yeah, Exactly
2: like for instance with programming it's something i want to learn and it's something i've wanted to learn for a long time but i'm just not passionate about it and every time i try to learn it i'm just like ah oh, it's just a bunch of fucking maths and like a bunch of logic and like <laughs> yeah. i mean i'm like yes i could work this out if somebody like paid me a bunch of money to do it i'd probably work it out but like i just it's not something that i like you said live and breathe it's not something i wake like i wake up and i'm like excited to think about and do and it's not something i go to bed thinking about and like you know wondering about whereas like for instance, currently, the, that thing for me is mountain biking, which is, like, super weird. I just recently got into that. So now I'm just, like, going to bed thinking about, like, fucking carbon versus aluminium frames on mountain bikes and shit. <laughs> and, like just the, and, and it's the same thing when I've, like, I haven't been like this for a while with Ableton. But, like, the way I think I got good at Ableton was I was just that way about it when I first got into it. And I would, like, go to bed thinking about, like, how the how I could make a flanger out of, like, EQs in a rack with a bunch of macro controls or something like that, you know, just, like, thinking about dumb shit like that or thinking about how I could make, like, a, you know, uh, set up something to, like, I would go to bed thinking, like, oh, would a signal delay if I sent it through, like, you know, 50 iterations of channels where one took the input from the next one or something, like, would that cause, like, you know, I just think about dumb shit like that all the time. Yeah, and those, I, I those, know. <laughs> those questions and obsessiveness about it was, I think, what, like, made me learn a lot about it. But, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's something that you just need to to have that kind of level of obsession about to get good. Um, but it's awesome that you had that about, like, programming, man, because, like, yeah, the, the, the plugins that you make are awesome. And it's crazy that you, you do that all single-handedly, right?
0: Well, you know, I, I think... This is, uh, it's good that you bring this up because I think we we should dig into this a little bit. So yeah, I'm actually kind of like you when it comes to programming. Uh, so let me rewind a little bit and I'll I'll kind of give a, a little bit of a backstory. So in, in 2005, I was in the process of going back to school and I was already in my 30s at this point. But I really wanted to get into game audio, and I realized, you know, there are several paths to do that. But I kind of took the more traditional path and just went back to school and uh, pursued an audio engineering degree. So during that process, uh, I serendipitously walked into Barnes and Noble one day with my wife. It was like June of 2005, and literally that week, a book was released from Reed Gazala, who's a circuit bending pioneer, kind of uh, old yeah. hippie, you know, old uh, hippie guy.
2: Uh, the Green Book? I've read yeah, this the book. Yeah, The Green Book. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I was walking through the door and there it was on a shelf because it had just been released. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I actually found out about circuit bending in maybe 2002 or 2003 and was really interested in it because at that point I had already been into synths for many, many years and uh, music production and all of that. So this was totally up my alley kind of thing. And so when I saw the book, I was like, okay, I got to do this. And within a week I started to get all the parts and everything I needed to start doing the projects in the book. And one thing kind of led to another. And I started this brand glitch machines, making these instruments for people that you've probably by now seen on my page. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well, um, (laughs) through, you know, through that, I got into making s- basically sample packs and uh, eventually plugins. Um, but that was around 2012 when we actually met was when I released the first sample pack with glitch machines. Before that, for the first five years, glitch machines was just about building instruments. And um, so where I'm going with this is that through building those instruments and through being into synthesizers on a pretty deep level since I was like fifteen, Um, I learned a lot about not only synthesis, but just design, like synth design and things like that. Kind of self-taught. And in 2013 or so, um, after releasing a few sample packs, I did a a joint project. I don't know if you know Antonio Blanca. He's a sound designer who works with Twisted Tools and does a bunch of other stuff kind of on the side as well.
2: Is he like uh, sort of the other guy from Twisted Tools that isn't Josh?
0: No, no, that's Igor. Igor is Josh's partner. Okay. Um, this is another guy that jumped on to work with them, kind of a little bit later on. Okay. Um, but he was just part of the sort of ecosystem that we all sort of existed in, and so we hooked up. And he made a lemur template. I made a sample pack, and my my other friend Thomas, who had a company, still has this same company called In Ear Display, from France. So he made a little plugin. And the plugin was called Fragment. The whole project, we called it Fragment. And it was a glitch machines project. So I basically released it as a small plugin, the sample pack and the lemur template as kind of one thing for, and it was like 10 bucks or something. This thing did so incredibly well that I realized, okay, plugins would be an amazing direction for glitch machines. Sample packs, certainly, but plugins have much more capacity and potential to earn revenue and, you know, actually make a living doing this. And so one thing led to another and I convinced Thomas to jump on board and basically close up shop for a couple of years to focus on building a bunch of plugins for me. And so the first plugin I designed from the ground up and then asked him to basically build for me was Polygon. And I took all of my sort of experience from building hardware instruments and from knowing synthesizers and working with them for so many years, and at that point also having had an audio engineering degree. So I took all of that experience and basically created a sampler that I wanted to have for myself, and also as a Glitch Machine's product, of course. But it was kind of like, what would my dream sampler be sort of within, you know, within reason? And that was Polygon. And I essentially hired Thomas to code it, and then we worked hand in hand to iron out all of the different, you know, the details ranging from the interface design to all the parameter scaling and all of that stuff. And Polygon was a big success for us at the time. Actually, it still is, and we recently released that update that I think you saw too, so now it's a Polygon 2.0. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that sort of set off the whole thing, so since then, we ported some of the in-ear display uh, plugins over and called them different names the like smaller effects ones and i designed a bunch of stuff and he even came up with a couple the the designs so thomas was the main person behind cataract uh, which is kind of our like sample slicer looper type of thing Mm -hmm. and uh he and i kind of co-created quadrant which is our modular effects processor but i i came up with the idea for uh palindrome
2: Mm -hmm. the granulizer
0: the granular one, yeah. And then I also designed uh, Polygon and uh, some of the other ones, Fracture XT and stuff. And actually, the fragment plugin that I told you about, that actually became Fracture.
2: Hmm, right.
0: And then we decided okay, let's just make it into a thing that's still free, but like we kind of added a couple things to it and it became Fracture. Fracture and Hysteresis are two free plugins.
2: Yeah, how would you describe Fracture if you were to, like, describe Because the way I would describe it to someone, because um, to be honest, I haven't actually, like, looked into what it's doing. I always just, like, put it on something and just click a bunch of buttons and it just fucks shit up is kind of what it is. It's like the fuck shit up plugin for me. I just yeah. put it on stuff if I want to, like, glitch stuff out and, like, create basically fills in my music.
0: That's exactly what it's for in, in my mind. I think there's no real rule set to how you should use it, but it's basically, like, inspired by... You know, some of the older, you know, buffer kind of (laughs) buffer override and stuff like
2: that. Those Mm. types of plugins were like audio damage and stuff.
0: Exactly. Like, well, you know, just I I mean, I've been using those kinds of things since way back in the day when reactor was still called generator and stuff. So just kind of looking back at like all the cool tools, you know, like there's one at some point it was a free thing called Supa Trigger that everybody spammed to hell and back in all their tracks. Right. So I looked at a lot of things like that and just wanted a plugin like that, that just no overhead really for CPU, something that spits out usable, great results every time. It's easy to randomize, so there's not too many parameters. The parameter scaling kind of lends itself to a lot of sweet spots, and that's what Fracture is. It's just one of those tools. Both that and Hysteresis have been downloaded just from our site almost 400,000 times each.
2: Jesus Christ, that's a ton.
0: That's a crazy amount. So it brings a lot of people to our site. And then, um, you know, like Plugin Boutique, who uh, is our exclusive distributor for the plugins, they've got, I don't even know how many, probably at least 50,000 also each for those two plugins. Um, So we get an incredible amount of uh, interest just through those plugins. And we're actually going to be releasing a couple of updates for them, hopefully in December with just a, a few reworkings, nothing too major because we don't want to add too much for a free product, but mm. they need like new interfaces and stuff like that. So right. to to wrap up and I know it was a long-winded answer, uh, I am like you. C++ intimidates the hell out of me and I don't particularly find myself very passionate about programming. It, it's kind of like I I can I feel like I can do it if I really sat down and if I was able like Steve, from X for Records was able to shut the doors for a year and basically just hibernate and learn C++. If I could do that, I feel like I probably still wouldn't do it <laughs> <Right>. because I'm <laughs> just not, it's
2: just not my cup of tea. Um, right, like you prefer to shut the doors and like work on music or something or sound designer.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and so it's nice to have Thomas because at this point we've been working together for something like eight years and he's become basically part of the family. I mean, like my wife and him will exchange emails about certain financial things because she helps with that aspect of the company. And, uh, you know, our kids will like get on Skype and chat and stuff because he's in France. So uh, having somebody like that, that I can really connect with on a really, really deep kind of technical and creative level that I can work with in sort of parallel to create these plugins is an incredible godsend, and I I couldn't imagine trying to replace him, but um, that's, yeah, that's what's going on with the plugins. I do everything except for the C++. I I even do, like, for Polygon, I design the logo. I've been designing a lot more logos for our stuff, Um, but I hire certain people to do other tasks for glitch machines, and we can get into that, too, if you want.
2: Yeah, I'm curious how the company works, um, because, I mean, obviously, like, Uh, building the plugin is like one small component of distributing a plugin, right? Because like you need, on the front end, I mean, for starters, you need a website, which is a pain in the ass. You need to be able to you need a website that can handle 400,000 people coming to it and downloading something, which is a technical feat in itself. Like you need to use probably AWS service for that or something like that. Um, Something that's like scalable. Uh, And then you know, you need marketing, which is tough. You need to obviously, work, like you're saying, build relationships and uh, make deals with distributors like Plug In Boutique. Um, so it's like probably a lot of emailing, a lot of phone calls, a lot of, you know, a lot of ulterior stuff that isn't building the plugin, right? So yeah, I guess I'd like to get into that stuff a little bit because there's a lot of shit like that on my end too. Um, with the Mister Bill's Tune stuff because that's an educational website. There's project mm-hmm. files and samples packs and stuff there. Right, right. Not to the level that Glitch Machines uh, do do that kind of stuff, but definitely like it's uh, sort of on my radar pretty heavily because it's like one of, one of the big components of <clears throat> my income and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think people realize it's not like all writing music. You know, like it's a lot of <laughs> administrative work and
0: a lot. Yeah, it really is. Uh, well, I'd be happy to get into that. I mean, do you want me to just speak about it kind of generally, or do you want to uh, start with a particular area that you're interested in or that you think your listeners might be interested in?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, I think like what I would find the most interesting is just sort of like, what's your day to day like?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, so I'll give you a uh, sort of a zoomed back explanation, and then I'll kind of dig more into the details. So, um, So I live and work in the same space. My studio's here in my basement. We built it, you know, the basement was just an open space. So we built this room in the basement and it's very far from being (laughs) anywhere near ideal sonically, just in terms of acoustics and everything, but it's the best that I can do. And it actually serves its purpose quite well. I mean, for one thing, like it's, there's foam all over the top third of the walls, which is kind of a big no-no, if you speak to any acoustician or anything like that. But i why,
2: why is that a no-no?
0: Well, just because it's it, it's not necessarily like working with the acoustics of the room. It's just blanketing any kind of reflections from bouncing around and kind of deadening it all. But it's not actually like. It, doing it in any kind of calculated way. It's just like, yep, oh, let's just throw foam on the walls and it'll kill some of the reflections.
2: Yeah, it's going to kill the comb filtering and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so, it's, no,
2: it's not going to, like, provide density to deal with, like, modal resonance. and.
0: Precisely. So, you know, it, it is what it is, but it, it's a nice little spot and the commute is extremely short down a flight of steps. <laughs> uh, my kids are homeschooled. Uh, so they, we wanted to kind of give them the opportunity to do that, and it was partially because I'm able to maintain earning a living doing everything that I do, which gives my wife the opportunity to be a stay-at-home mom and also homeschool the kids. And interestingly, they've kind of gravitated towards my world a bit. I've been training my daughter uh, on audio engineering and songwriting for the last few years, and she is in every imaginable dance and singing class and things like that so it's really cool to be able to share that with my kids and my son is super into programming he's only 9 but he's like already learning python and stuff it's crazy wow that's insane yeah so it's 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 really that kind of environment at home where we're always and you know everybody's really supportive of what I do and and into kind of what I do and it's it's a really great environment to work in, but it's also really stressful to have everybody sort of hanging over my head. I don't get to just decouple and go to work and kind of be in that environment and then come home and separate the two. So there's there's a little bit of uh, difficulty with that, but we, we actually make it work really, really well. There are just some days where I have to kind of stop what I'm doing and go, go upstairs and mediate a disagreement or things
2: like that. But for the most mm. part, I can focus and everybody sort of <clears throat> is sensitive to that. So, Right. And um, on the glitch machine side of things, because I assume that's kind of like your primary thing, um, what's the day-to-day look like for that kind of? Like, are you waking up in the morning and going like, all right, I'm going to start conceptualizing some new plugin or are you do you have like many projects on the go at once or do you sort of just wake up and sort of respond to customer emails and like try and, you know, do tech support stuff or like, yeah, how does that sort of work?
0: Yeah, all of the above. And I I guess I was kind of leading into that. Um, So I come down here in the morning with my massive cup of coffee. And the first thing I usually do is email because I actually still answer a lot of the tech support emails and stuff like that. Um, Luckily we do a lot of work ahead of sort of time to prevent big tech support issues or constant updates and things like that. And I think that's one thing that I pride myself or we pride ourselves on is that our plugins are generally pretty stable. And that's you know really amazing because a lot of plug-in companies, a big part of their workload happens to be support, you know. Um, so I don't have too much of that going on, but I, I come and I answer those emails. There's always administrative types of emails, either somebody wanting to jump on a phone call with me about something or wanting to put out something and, you know, just any kind of correspondence. I take care of all that first thing in the morning. I uh, To answer uh, your other question, I usually have three or four projects going at once. I prioritize the stuff that's obviously glitch machines related or that I may be doing for another company because that's where I'm going to make money. If I'm just over here on the modular or doing some music stuff, it's usually in between those things because I can't justify prioritizing those things that generally don't earn any income for me. And um, if I am happen to be working on A plugin, it's a lot of kind of going back and forth with Thomas. We use a couple of platforms for that. We use Asana Mm -hmm. um, and Slack. I usually use Asana when it's just he and I going through the kind of alpha and, you know, those sort of stages of the workflow of the, the software development. And then once we get up to beta, I assemble a small team of beta testers in Slack, and then we spend that part of the process there. Um, and then eventually, you know, release everything. But yeah, it, what you had said earlier is, is absolutely a big part of my world, which is all the administrative stuff. Running a company is no joke. And I had to learn a lot of it by trial and error. And, mm-hmm. and that was a, a very kind of uh, sobering experience. But now, 10 years in, I feel like I really have a good grasp on how to deal with things like marketing, distribution, Uh, Yeah, even just uh, like the web stuff that you're talking about and uh, PR, anything like that. It's uh, not something that was just taught to me, though. I had to sort of figure it out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess the only way to learn it really is to probably go through like business school. But even still, it's kind of like you have to figure a bunch of it out, because especially in the music industry there is no real like structured way to learn all of these things in the music industry and that's because i feel like the music industry is just so lawless like people just uh you know work on their own time schedules and like people are in general like pretty relaxed about everything and like mm-hmm. it's it's not like you know working in um like tech right like yeah, I'm, i live in san francisco now um so i'm around a lot of techies And they're just, they're so structured, man. It's like, they wake up at a certain time. If they say they're going to be on a meeting call at a certain time, they're there without Mm -hmm. fail, like... If you don't show up to a thing that you said you were going to show up like directly on time, they're kind of like, what the fuck's going on? And they freak out. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. um, it's completely different world to the music world where where all of the stuff I just mentioned does not apply at all. And people just sort of go at their own pace and do whatever. Um, so to kind of navigate all of that, I find is like a, a skill in itself as well. It
0: is. And a, a lot of people want to do things with glitch machines. Um so i get a lot of emails from people that want to collaborate or work together and stuff but it's usually folks that can't work in that capacity and it's it's almost like well okay you they may do cool work but bringing them on and doing a project actually implies some form of having to deal with those kind of nuances of their workflow maybe not being on time or not communicating cl- clearly or just all of those things I don't really have time to wait on somebody like that. Um, And I've come across that a few times over the years where I've had to kind of cut people loose because they're just approaching it like an artist, which is understandable, but it doesn't work in the context of running a company and all the things, you know, you just mentioned.
2: Right, which is tough because... um at the end of the day like you you want something like glitch machines or i want something like mr bill's tunes to be ultimately a creative endeavor right because like i mean Mm -hmm. building plugins is still a creative thing it's like you're trying to figure out like how to use libraries that exist and how to use like tech that exists to do something new and interesting and innovative um so in that sense it's like super creative uh so it's tough i feel like to sort of balance the two right to be like very professional and on time and like you know Um, and then also be like meandering and creative and doing like these sort of innovative, interesting things. It's tough, I think, to like, to be, have your foot in both mindsets. It's,
0: it's really tough because I, I feel like at, at my core, I'm a creative, weird person, but you know, there's only so much of that that I can kind of pursue, or I don't know, for lack of a better term, because... I have to kind of maintain so many different things that are time-sensitive and that are you know, very critical that I can't really let myself just meander and just be the creative kind of uh, force that I would normally be if I didn't have those responsibilities. And other people that kind of come into this fold don't completely seem to understand that, and I find it very difficult to kind of be in the middle of that, having to sort of explain – why I can't do things a certain way or why I can't do certain things um, to somebody that isn't in my position.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, academia because you've spent a bunch of time in, in academia. Yeah. Uh, so you said you you did a Bachelor of Audio Engineering um, at Expression, which is... Expression, is that SAE?
0: Well, it is now. So when I, when I went to Expression... Um, It was uh, called the Expression Center for New Media, Mm. and it was effectively an entirely different school at that point. Um, How the whole thing with SAE happened, I'll give you the abbreviated story. So SAE essentially bought Expression, and then Mm -hmm. they moved the San Francisco campus that you and I met at, they moved that into the Expression campus, which is in Emeryville across the Bay Bridge. and. Then they proceeded to shut down a bunch of the school and basically fire 90% of all the instructors that were the who's who of the Bay Area audio industry, which is the stupidest thing they could have done in my opinion. But they basically dismantled the whole school, took down all of the cool stuff that had been built over many, many years. For example, when you walked into expression on the right side, there's a huge wall with autographs from every imaginable audio person that had come through there over the years. SAE came in and literally tore that wall down.
2: <laughs> wow!
0: And that was like a staple of the school, you know, stuff like that. So anyway, I had already left at that point. When we met, um, I was the, already the director of SAE. But leading up to that, I was actually an instructor and I, I taught classes there for quite a while before I got the opportunity to run the whole school and uh, eventually I actually left because I couldn't justify doing glitch machines in parallel it was too much and I saw glitch machines as an opportunity to make a full-time living doing what I love so I didn't really feel like I wanted to stick around. Academia is cool to an extent but working in academia is kind of a different story and especially at the level that i was at the only path was really towards kind of upper management which was totally getting away from any of the creative stuff and that was not where i wanted to go so i i took off and a couple years later they bought expression and moved into that campus and closed up the school and that's kind of how that all unfolded
2: right Yeah, I find academia is, um, I find it to be pretty inspiring. But yeah, it's hard to get any like self-fulfilling projects done whilst also teaching in it, I think. And um, I've only had like a really small taste of this. I basically um, took over um, Ben Cantle's position at Berkeley in Valencia for three months as the sound design uh, teacher for like... um, uh, it's like a masters of sound design program that people who complete the uh, audio engineering degree at Berkeley in Boston go to Valencia then to, to do the masters. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, that was fun. But I found during those three months it was really tough to get any any music really done. But um, it was inspiring though. It's it's really cool. I feel like there's a different vibe in a school than there is in you know in a club or in a um, in just in the music industry at large. I, th- I feel like because. I don't know you go into these these schools where everyone is just thinking and trying to like learn as much as they possibly can and do all this like interesting stuff and it just has a really cool vibe about it which I really like.
0: I I agree with you completely. That that was one aspect of working in a school that I I really miss. I miss the students and I actually keep in touch with some of the SAE students that I had that I taught. Um but the energy It's just working in a creative environment with people that are hungry for it, that are kind of, you know, green and (laughs) malleable, but also like really enthusiastic that also have their own creative ideas and perspectives that you can learn from. Um, That was an incredible environment to to work in on a daily basis. And I definitely miss that. But teaching is hard, man. I You know, at one point I, I lectured nine hours a day, three hour lectures back to back to back.
2: That's that's insane. It's going to be bad for your voice.
0: (laughs) Not only is it bad for my voice, but just keeping track of everything. You know, what what did I speak to this group about that I didn't speak to this group about, et cetera, et cetera. It starts to all kind of blend together after a
2: while. Mm. It's a really good way, I find, to like well round, like round out your knowledge a lot. Because once you start trying to explain something to somebody, um, you immediately like realize what, where your weaknesses are in the information that you know. Exactly. Yeah. You you start to realize what it is that you only kind of half know or just know intrinsically mm-hmm. and don't actually fully understand because you know if you did you'd be able to explain it in a million different ways. Yeah. Um so I found teach- teaching I think is amazing for that just getting your knowledge well rounded. Uh and also I find and this was like some weird side effect of teaching for 3 months at a college that I that I found is that when you spend nine hours a day and I wasn't lecturing that much, I was lecturing like, I think three to six hours a day at most. It's still um, a lot. It's <laughs> still a lot. Yeah. It's tons. But, uh, I found if I was lecturing, you know, for that many hours a day, trying to explain to a bunch of people, these really technical concepts, it's really tough, right. To like explain these very abstract and technical and like strange audio theory concepts to people who don't know them. And I find once you get very good at articulating, like, the hardest possible thing to somebody um it just i found became better for my relationship as well like i was way better at articulating like my emotions to my partner and stuff like that because i was like so used to articulating these extremely technical like abstract fucked up things to people that like is exactly and that's exactly what emotions are right they're like these irrational abstract like weird things and yeah. I feel like it it kind of builds that skill as well. Of that's, being to...
0: a, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I guess I'd never really thought of that, but that's so true. You just be- become much better articulating all of your thoughts.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah I, I found that to be like one of the cool side effects of it, um, for sure. Um, I would, yeah, I would like to get back into academia at some point, but I feel like it would it would probably be something I'd do later in life, like after I've just kind of completed all of my... <laughs> stuff and just get completely sick of touring it's been like this year for instance i'm with covid not being able to tour it's actually like in some ways been really cool because i I just haven't taken a year off like this in over a decade basically where i haven't you know taken a flight in six months like i've been flying basically every weekend for the last 10 years
0: so (laughs) yeah i can i can imagine just from my own experience of just doing that for a short while i can imagine how exhausting and how difficult it is to sort of just feel settled for a moment so you can kind of take a look at zoom out take a big picture look at everything and kind of make some decisions when you're constantly on the move it's tough to do that so it's actually good that you got to do that this year
2: yeah I i don't think people realize how bad touring is for you like I think one of the most important things ever in your life is going to be what you put into your body, right? Like your diet. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're, when you're touring, you don't really get a choice every time of what you put into your body. Like you're hungry and you need food and not all the time is there going to be an option to eat a healthy meal. So, like, quite often you're having dinner at an Arby's in Ohio, <laughs> you know, or, like, yeah. you're eating some bullshit. And that and that's more often than not, actually, that you're eating some crap at an airport or some crap at, like, you know, some weird place. And uh, by not touring this whole year, I've lost fucking 30 pounds, which is crazy. Yeah, Just, you
0: look great, by the way.
2: <laughs> thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, so, like, that's another huge thing that's been cool is... um. Yeah, just like fixing my diet a lot and Mm
0: -hmm. yeah, yeah, touring. I mean, I always joke with the kids when they ask me about touring and stuff, um, because they're my daughter's really into K-pop, and you know, as a sort of a side effect, I've kind of become interested in it because there's a lot of cool stuff that they're doing. But um, you know, she always asks me about touring, and it's like you know, one one joke that keeps coming up is that well, it's basically just eating at another shitty place in a different location and being bored until the show I mean at some (laughs) point pretty much yeah that's what it kind of really becomes is just finding the (laughs) least shitty place to eat and hopefully staying at a place that's not too you know too compromised so that can wear on you after a while
2: yeah that is true it is quite often that like um I'll just be playing chess on my phone until I have to play the show and then i'll go back to playing chess on my phone (laughs) it's actually not that like the hour on stage is like fun but the 23 hours off stage are generally not that fun on tour it's much much more interesting to be in your own studio doing creative stuff totally and And having the option to like go to your garage and drive somewhere and do something you actually want to do and stuff like that
0: yeah and you do so uh i mean i know i know you haven't been playing since COVID, but. You have been through here a couple times, and for one reason or another, we didn't hook up. But I noticed that you kind of go through and uh, do a lot of shows. How does that usually work? I mean, do you you get booked, and then people fly? Do you fly out? Do the do they pay for? Because I've I haven't, like I said, I haven't really spent too much time as like a touring musician in the last twenty years. So I don't know how people are like yourself are doing it. I mean, are you paying for your own flight and then factoring that in? to the overall, you know, ticket kind of value that comes out of these shows? Or how, do, how does that part of it work?
2: Yeah. So it depends on the show. Um, so there's a bunch of different deals that you can get, right? Um, and in America, the general deal that you get is called a landed deal. Um, and generally that will mean like if the promoter pays you like $2,000 to play a show, then it's landed. Like they're giving you two grand, you're going to show up and play. Like they don't their hands are clean of anything else right so like mm-hmm. you have to buy your own flight you have to deal with your own hotel stuff like that okay um every now and then you'll get a deal where it's like they'll give you x amount of money plus flights in a hotel uh and that's actually more common outside of america like in australia that's more common um in fact it's i don't think i've ever played a show in australia where i've had to buy my own flight uh at least for shows where i'm not the promoter mm-hmm. and then um but yeah, generally here it's landed deals, which means like you get a, a flat fee and then out of that you have to figure everything out, which is yeah, kind of shitty because like on paper, um, it looks good. Like I don't know, let's say it's a two thousand dollar fee or whatever. Um, but then you have to pay your manager and your agent out of that and they don't take it from the net, they take it from the, the gross, right? Mm-hmm, so, like, mm-hmm. um, straight away that two grand becomes sixteen hundred, um, because they take ten percent each and then, yeah. uh, of that you probably end up spending another 600 bucks on flights and hotels so it's like that two grand pretty easily becomes one (laughs) and then you know all the food you spend when you're you know on the road there's probably another hundred bucks and then you probably put a hundred bucks into marketing the show so people actually come so like next time you go back you get paid more uh and so on and so forth so it's like pretty pretty easily that number on paper that looked good gets whittled down into a much smaller number
0: yeah, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, not not necessarily for any other reason than just to kind of scale their expectations. Because I I think like for me, I see somebody like yourself and in my mind, you're at the top of the electronic game. I mean, sure, there's always going to be bigger artists. You know, you have guys like Joel who are massive artists. But I mean, as far as I see it, like you're you're somebody I point to as like, an electronic musician that is successful and people should know that even though you play all these shows and make all this amazing music, it still comes at a cost, you know, you still have to kind of deal with all of these nuances of getting, you know, the money stuff sorted and getting your transportation sorted and all of those things are much less glamorous than maybe people kind of see the music itself as and, you know, you as an artist.
2: Yeah, for sure. But it also, I guess, comes down to um, like your measures of success, too, right? Because, sure, l- sure. Like, in some ways, you could look at your life as super successful because you get to just like sit in the studio and do, I mean, a lot of administrative stuff, but also a lot of like just sound design and stuff, which is kind right. of like really cool. And I, I hear a lot of uh, DJs actually who have just been grinding the circuit for a long time kind of espouse this idea of wanting to sort of do stuff for games and film and stuff like that because it's mm-hmm. just seemed more fulfilling, right, to just be in the studio doing that kind of stuff than, than to fly around pressing play on CDJs. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess it's it's also kind of a case of the grass is always greener on the other side. And I, I think it's, it's just interesting when you get to a certain point, um, you start to realize everybody's just, you know, we're all just people <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, nobody. I mean, I, I like as a as a kid, I I always looked up to the artists that I was kind of influenced by or, or inspired by, and they felt like these kind of untouchable entities. But as I've grown older, I've become aware that hey, they're just people. You know, mm-hmm. we're all just people, kind of trying to do this thing, and everybody has their quirks and pros and cons and different challenges and stuff, and it's it's just interesting. To kind of think about that.
2: Yeah, to add to that, um, another thing I feel like I've noticed with those those large artists that are kind of like these untouchable guru-type, you know, hyper-successful people is that I've noticed that, um, I, I guess I used to think like, oh, they're just, you know, uh, they got big because they were either so good or they got big because they were like really lucky, right? But I feel like the more I uh, meet these hyper-successful people, like you mentioned Joel um, and, you know, just other people people who are massive um you realize that it's it's really just these people who are just insanely hard workers and you know like yep. uh, joel for instance i went to his house um when i got there he was working uh we hung out for like a couple hours drinking beers uh and then fell asleep and i woke up the next day like at 11 a.m pretty hungover and he'd already been up since like 7 a.m just working again you know like <laughs> He, he builds all the visuals for his own show. Uh, you know, he's like one of the biggest artists on the planet. He doesn't have to do that. He can pay someone to do that if he wants, but he, he just won't. He's just a fucking workaholic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I admire that. I mean, there I think there's definitely a fine line and it, it's a subject that's come up a few times lately. I think because I posted on my social channels that I'm working on a bunch of stuff. And, you know, a couple people said, hey, don't forget to take a break. And, you know, my philosophy is that it, it starts with, Keeping your, like you said, just keeping uh, your body healthy and being in good shape, so that you can not only feel physically fit, but also mentally fit. You know those things. Um, I, I don't know. People don't don't seem to have their priorities kind of straight when it comes to that stuff. But that's kind of the 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 first thing that I kind of think about. Is is as long as my mental health and my physical health are solid, then I can do all these things, you know? Yeah,
2: that's kind of true. It's just about like sort of carving out an hour a day to take care of yourself or something like that.
0: Exactly. yeah. Which is hard to do when when you've got so many different things going on. But, you know, what I was going to say is, so my philosophy is basically just to find a balance, no matter how much I am seen as a workaholic, which some people see me as because I am prolific and I do just like you with your music. It's like the amount of music you make is staggering in my mind. And I think some people view my uh, portfolio that way too, like all the stuff that I do. And it implies that we're workaholics. And in my in my opinion, that carries some negative connotations. Uh, so I I like to think of it as just, I'm extremely driven, but I never lose sight of the importance of keeping that balance and staying healthy, and prioritizing the things that really matter, and uh, you know, just making decisions about what kind of I will spend my time and energy on, and what I won't. And and a lot of people fail to do those things, and it's really critical, I think, for success.
2: Yeah, I guess if you're a true workaholic, you'll uh, figure out ways to uh, preserve yourself to work for longer. <laughs> right. I guess that's another way to look at it. Yeah. Um, Looping back a little bit to sound design, uh, I wanted to talk about um, just kind of your process there. Because, like, uh, I'm currently making a bunch of presets for this new synth called Vital. Okay. And uh, one thing, I have you heard of this synth?
0: No, I haven't.
2: Um, it's pretty awesome. I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to talk about it. But uh, it's made by this guy called Matt Titel. He made a, another plugin called Helm a okay. while ago. He's just sort of like an independent programmer who lives in oakland and um this new synth he's making is is pretty cool it's called vital it's um i would say it's pretty serum-esque okay Uh, and i'm making presets for it um i'm supposed to make 60 and i've made like 25 or something and i feel like i'm just out of ideas for Mm -hmm. presets it's like i don't understand how how anybody like when i get a, a new plugin right it's like you know zebra or something like that there's like fucking a thousand presets in there by one guy called Howard Scar. <laughs> it's like, how do you, how does, how does he come up with this many sound ideas? You know, like I, I, I'm like, all right, I'll make like a bell, uh, I'll make like a, you know, a hi hat or synthesize like a kick and a snare. And like, you know, maybe make a couple of bass sounds, maybe make a couple of, you know, Euro synth lead sounds like I'll, I'll make like a, all the shit that I would need to make a tune. And then I'm like, I mean, I have all the sounds I probably need to make a tune. Like why, what, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess um my question is like how, yeah how do you try to not run out of sounds when you're making presets and making sounds and stuff like that conceptually but also process wise right because like um like like i was just talking about I, I think about making these sounds conceptually like oh i'm gonna make a bass i'm gonna make a drum but then i also think about them process wise right like oh i'm gonna make a sound where i run a comb filter through a f- distortion unit through a compressor or something like that, and then mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. flip that around. So it's like I think about think about it more from like the technical process rather than the con- the actual sound that I'm trying to make itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but even still, I run out of ideas at about like 30 presets. It's
0: it, it's a it's a g- very good topic and and good question because it's it's something that I get asked a lot because my my sample packs for glitch machines tend to clock in around you know some of them five six thousand sounds. And, uh, you know, I get I get asked quite a bit, how do you come up with so many ideas or so many variations on a theme, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it it's very context sensitive, like working on a plugin is definitely very different than working on a sample pack. And I think it also depends on the theme. But with plugins, I find that a lot of it for me comes down to the plugin itself. Some plugins, like if it's a subtractive synth or something kind of like that, I tend to find that there are just far fewer avenues for me to go in or directions to go in kind of creatively or technically. And it's really difficult to squeeze something interesting out of, or like a high quantity of interesting presets out of a synth like that. Um, And then sometimes the complexity is so overbearing that it's almost like you have to set everything aside and study for three days just to understand this thing in order to get the most out of it, Um, which can be a chore if you've got a bunch of other stuff going on, which I find myself kind of turning down projects where I think that's going to be too much studying. I don't have the time to learn this thing just so I can do what I need to do for this project. Um, But to kind of go back to your question, how I handle that is very different from project to project. And... I try to not overthink it. I think, in my opinion, people get too scientific with sound design. I've seen people, like, their workflow is incredibly slow. Watching your videos, your workflow is incredibly fast. It's also difficult to assess how your workflow is in a different context than songwriting, because all I've ever seen is when you're kind of designing sounds in the process of making a track, and so they're almost like purpose-built for the track. But I think what makes sound design outside of that context so complex is that you don't know what the context will be.
2: Right. You want to make it like not to process and stuff because it has to be usable in like many different contexts.
0: Yeah. And even perhaps genres or, you know, stuff like that. And so uh, I think that's really the difficult part, part about sound design is figuring those things out. Um, but I try not to overthink that because I find that if I overthink it, I kind of come up at, you know against this dead end where it's like well I'm thinking about it too technically so I try to just think of it really creatively and hopefully vibe with whatever I'm working on which sounds so kind of dumb when, when I say it out loud but I think the best sound design that I do is when I can really connect emotionally with the you know a piece of equipment software or whatever it is that I'm working with um, for example I did, this whole batch of, I think it was like 75 or 80 presets for uh, Biome, which was a modular effects processing plugin from Unfiltered Audio.
2: Yeah, dude, Unfiltered Audio is like another one of my favorite companies right now, actually. I'd love to get, um, what's his name, Michael Hetrick? Yeah. Is, yeah, I'd love to get him on too.
0: Oh, you should, he's yeah. he's an incredible engineer and creative person, and yeah, his his partner Josh too. I mean, they're really cool guys and it was a super cool project to work on. But I managed to make all those presets for them because, and they all each preset has macros and stuff. They're complex. They're all, if you haven't checked them out, they're in there uh, just in a Glitch Machines folder, kind of as part of the main preset batch.
2: Yeah, I've seen them. They're like next to all the Richard Divine ones. And-
0: yeah, yes, exactly. Richard did some too. Um, and Richard was like, Dude, because I sent my presets over first and he's like, dude, your presets are sick. You've inspired me to make my presets. And it was really cool to hear that (laughs) from from Richard. I mean, Richard and I have known each other for a long time because I built some instruments for him uh, way back in the day. But then to kind of get to a point where I'm actually working on the same projects as him is also really like an achievement for me because I've been looking up to him for so many years. Um, But anyway, so I was able to make all those presets because... I really vibed with this plugin. It just was like, okay, I get how it works. I know patching because I've been doing modular since 2007. So it was a comfortable environment for me. I kind of knew how to get the results that I was looking at and do something innovative with the plugin. And it really worked out. On the other hand, uh, more recently, I worked on another plugin and I didn't connect with it. And I felt it was a grind getting through even 30 presets, you know, where it was kind of like I made 10 and I'm like, where do I go from here? And it's because of the plugin. It's not because the plugin sucks. It's just because the scope of what you can do from a technical standpoint is limited. And so to work within those limitations often becomes difficult, especially if you're known for a specific sonic kind of thing. I'm known for really over the top kind of sound effects. And presets and stuff, and, and you know, adopting that to certain frameworks that are more limited is a big challenge, if not impossible in some cases. Because mm. it's like people want, oh, do your thing, you know, that thing that you do, and it's like, okay, well, the thing I do does not work in a certain environment, and I can't just do that thing in any context that is put in front of me, Right. But I think people kind of view it that way, like, well, you're really known for these crazy sound effects, so we want you to make those for us. Well, okay, but there are a lot of things to take into consideration that may not work, you know what I mean?
2: Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I feel like your sound design is, like, very... um sort of based around like spectral stuff and granular stuff and like it is, more yeah. more of the like uh FFT related and like sampling related stuff more so than say like yeah basic subtractive synth or yeah
0: yeah I don't really I get asked to do that sometimes where I've been asked to do presets for synths that are kind of mainstream by big companies uh, that you know probably shouldn't name but you can use your imagination and it's always like okay, we need you to make this many bass sounds and this many key sounds and this many pad sounds and this many stat. And it's like, well, that's not really what I do. I don't make like a slap bass or, you know what mm. I mean? Like the, that's not the right kind of project for me. It would be like hiring, you know, you to do a ukulele cover. I don't know. It's just like that's not what you do. You know what I mean?
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Um, I guess I have like a similar question for field recording. Cause, uh, I noticed like you, I've seen a bunch of like Instagram stories you've posted where you're like recording stuff with these insanely high tech mics going into these really crazy preamps mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, I have a few questions about this. Uh, I guess first of all I have a question about the gear you're using because it always looks just insanely technical like sure it always looks really expensive and really nice and obviously the quality of the recordings that comes out of that gear is amazing and then uh, I guess the second question is um like what do you what do you like to record with that and like how do you get new ideas for stuff to record right because I mean there's already a billion recordings online of someone breaking sticks or like stepping on rocks or breaking ice or you know, like slamming doors and hitting the side of like uh, garage doors or like you know, hitting mm-hmm. iron bars. Like there's already all of this recorded, right? So it's like at what point do you go like, all right, I don't need to record those things. Um, there's already recordings. Like they're obsolete to record at this point. that's redundant. Um, so like where do you get ideas, I guess, to to record new stuff like that?
0: I, I, I look at it kind of like music. It's kind of like... Um What you're saying is absolutely true. There's already a plethora of footsteps and glass breaking and things like that. But I also kind of think of it like, well, there may be, but maybe not how I would approach it. It's just like music, like, well, we have enough IDM or we have enough glitch hop or whatever you want to label it. Well, but there's always another artist that can put a different spin on it and put their creative perspective and ideas and experience and life into that music. And it's going to be inherently different. So to shut the doors on a genre, just because we have enough of it, you know, I don't know. So it's kind of like that with, with sound design for me, I, I try to think of everything from the vantage point of glitch machines rather than like just post-production or fully recording in general And how it can be used as a creative tool within the ecosystem that I've created for glitch machines. And that in itself informs my kind of creative wavelength and trajectory. uh, And it allows me to look beyond the obvious stuff of like, okay, I'm recording glass. This has been done before. I'm thinking of it as... What kind of layer is this going to be in this other kind of bigger picture thing that I'm going to do with these recordings? Now, some of the Glitch Machine's packs are comprised of raw recorded material. They're just Foley sounds. And it's all the stuff that, you know, you kind of mentioned, just every kind of sound you can imagine. If you had a mic and you just started walking around the neighborhood or even inside your house recording stuff, I've done all that. And you could argue that, well, that's been done, and it certainly continues to be done. (laughs) I see new, new sound designers cropping up every day that put their stuff on a sound effect, and it's all the same wandering around with electromagnetic mics or whatever it is that people do. But again, I think it's important not to dwell on how much it's been done or how much it's going to be done in the future, and just look at it for your own purposes and kind of what you plan to get out of that. Uh, material and and what inspires you. So I, I generally kind of think of recording as a way of gathering new ingredients, just like if I'm going and I want to have people over for dinner and I go to the store to buy all those ingredients that I may not have, I approach field recording that way or recording Foley stuff here in the studio. Like what would be interesting to add to this kind of ecosystem of sounds and how does that Allow me to do something new.
2: Mm. Yeah, that makes um, sense.
0: The gear itself, um, I I I happen to think that there's really no excuse to have really high end gear if you're selling your recordings to. I mean, my stuff is in Skywalker Sounds l- Library, in every major game studio. You know, Warner Brothers stuff like that. So I can't in good conscience record that stuff with a $200 handheld zoom. Mm. And that's where that comes from. So I've invested a significant amount of money into some really high end mics and other equipment that I can make these recordings with because I feel like, you know, that that's necessary at that level.
2: Mm. Um, And what, what, yeah, what are you actually using primarily for these recordings?
0: So I personally happen to really like the sonic kind of fingerprint of the Sennheiser MKH range of microphones. They have uh, several shotgun mics in that range, and they also have some cardioids and different types of mics like that. So I have uh, the MKH 8060, which is a mic that I'm actually recording through right now. Uh, it's a short shotgun that's really easy to kind of carry with you because it's small then I have its big brother, this, uh, the 8070, which is huge. It's really long, massive microphone that's really unwieldy and hard to carry around. But it's incredible for capturing things that are far away. Um, I take that out very rarely, but from time to time it gets incredible recordings because it really is kind of like pointing a microscope into the distance and then recording that thing in a really clear way. Kind of have to hear it to believe it. Um and then I have a couple of stereo pairs of mics, the 8040s and 8020s. The 8020s are omnis, and I usually use those to record ambiences and things like that. Um, I set them up in an AB space pair kind of you know, situation most of the time, but the nice thing is you can do some hyper-extended stuff. Like I can grab a couple 20-foot XLRs and set them really far apart to get a huge kind of you know, stereo spread on a specific recording that I may want. Things like that, so it's really nice to have those uh, separated, so I can kind of decouple and and depending on what I'm trying to capture, uh, kind of spread them around and 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 play with the stereo field. And then the eighty forties are cardioids, so they're more for. Um, I usually have those in an XY. I have them in in a, a a Rycote Cyclone, which is a special windscreen that's made for them to be housed together in an XY formation. And I use those more for stereo uh, sound effects recording, Foley stuff that I want to record in stereo, but is more up close. And hmm. you know, those I guess uh, four or five, six. Those six mics are what I use most of the time. I record with a Sound Devices 633, which is just one of the kind of higher end field recorders that are out there, and. Um,
2: yeah, I feel like the preamp has, like, so much to do with recording, right? Because I've oh, found, yeah. like, this mic that I'm using here, this RE20, is completely different if I plug it into my Native Instruments Audio Control 1 than it is if I plug it into my RME Fireface 802 than it is if I plug it into my Metric Halo ULN2, you know? like, I, And I find the Metric Halo ULN2 to just shit on everything that I own, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize, like just how important mic pre's were until I got this metric halo and tried it out one day. I was like, holy shit, this thing sounds amazing.
0: Right, well, and that and that's my whole argument against, and okay, let, let me just say this because I don't want to upset listeners that might fall into the category of people that walk around with small Zoom recorders. I think they are still capable of capturing a lot of cool sounds at a, at a reasonably high quality. And I actually think for convenience, I have a Tascam doctor something or other that I carry with me uh, when we go on trips and stuff, because it's really convenient to just be able to bust something out of your pocket and record. But um, if you're going to be doing a professional library, it's kind of a different story. Um, But the thing about the small recorders is that the microphones just are not capable of recording some of the dynamic range of some of these you know together with the preamps the dynamic range of some of the things that you want to record and they're inherently noisy and they tend to typically kind of skew towards the high frequency of of the spectrum so they sound harsh um and even if you did plug in uh a mic to the built-in preamps most of the time the preamp is also not able to handle really high SPL or like big dynamic ranges and they're also noisy and stuff like that so Getting the high-end equipment, it's really about that. It's about the fidelity, not just about you know build quality and reliability, which is also a thing. Um, but really, it's just being able to capture everything from a whisper to a gunshot. A mm. crappy preamp isn't going to be able to deal with nuanced or really loud things like that.
2: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I really only have one more question that I was like really excited to ask you, and that's um, what's exciting you in music tech of late?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, that's a hard one. <laughs> what's exciting me in music tech? I think I've been around for so long that I'm not as easily amused as I used to be. So when I see new things come out, like for example, this Aphex Twin thing that, you know, the synth that Novation just announced... Everybody's Wait, up in arms about it, but I see that kind of what, stuff. What is this? Oh, have you have you not seen? It? <laughs> there's no, I have a, to
2: Google this right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a new uh, Novation AFX Twin synth. It's basically uh, the
2: a- AFX station. Yeah. The fuck is this? <laughs> huh. Okay. It looks like the old Novation 25 keyboards, but with some knobs on it. Yeah, it's I guess some, they have... Somewhere between like a Novation SL25 and like a SH101 by... It whatever.
0: seems that way. Yeah, I think what I honestly haven't read too much about it, so I I probably shouldn't give you a, my synopsis without actually knowing what I'm talking about. But there it is. It's just an example of things that get released that everybody gets hyped about or the new uh, Prophet Synth or you know, the Moog One or all the things that kind of come out over time, whether it's hardware or software, it really could be anything. It's just, I, I feel desensitized because I've been buying gear since I was 15. I've had home studio after home studio after home studio ad nauseum, you know, I'm 45 now. So this has been 30 years of studio gear. All my money has gone towards gear. And because of that, I've been able to learn a lot and get my hands on a lot of gear. But I've also become desensitized where it's kind of like, okay, it's not, I I get more excited about doing something with equipment than about the equipment itself. Um, but I do get excited. I think recently I've been digging back into modular more. And so I get excited when new modules get announced again, only because it, represents something new that I can do with my system, or maybe a new sound that I can kind of get out of it or whatever. Um, Those things excite me. And I think computing too, in general, has become more and more capable of doing the stuff that you're talking about, like FFT and spectral stuff. I think we're going to start seeing more and more DSP heavy uh, things like that kind of come to fruition because... Of the way that computer technology is exponentially growing, and that's exciting to me. I I do like other kind of visual technologies. I love projection mapping and things like that. And uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of having some kind of a visual component to any kind of musical endeavor. And that's a, a an area that I find myself frustrated in quite a bit because. If I'm going to make music, which is already kind of an extra sort of a hobby thing for me at this point, then I want it to be at a level where it's kind of fully realized and in order for that to happen, it needs to have a visual counterpiece piece or, or component mm. and that costs money because my ideas are like to have something really cinematic and I don't have 50K or 100K to spend on something that I know isn't going to make money in the first place because there's no infrastructure for me to earn money off of something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, yeah, I could make this really high-budget thing, and I could make it great, but what's going to happen with it then? It's not just—people aren't just going to flock to it. It has to be released somehow so that it can be seen by a large group of people, and there's big challenges involved with that, as you know. Um, But, yeah, I'm excited about visual stuff that is becoming more and more accessible, like touch designer and uh, things like that that are allowing artists to— create those kinds of visual you know parallels to their their creative musical work
2: yeah that's yeah i'm excited about that stuff too actually one of the things i've been finding most exciting lately at least in the audio world and this is like not even that new of an idea but it's just something that's been on my radar a lot lately is um like spectral sounds and uh like additive stuff i guess like rebuilding stuff out of sine waves mm-hmm. so um mm-hmm. like uh those resynthesis plugins like Hammer and stuff like that where you right. can like run run a sound through it and it just rebuilds it additively or um the spectral stuff like there's these old plugins that i found recently uh by a company called anarchy effects uh there's like a plugin called convoluta that i've been using a ton where it just like pulls things into like its spectral bands and you yeah, know i've been loving that like it j- you just get that kind of big smear of like that's cool i I
0: have i don't know that one so i'll have to to look that up i'm totally don't don't get me wrong my kind of like grumpy old man type of thing about being desensitized that doesn't mean i'm not totally an audio geek through and through which i 100 percent am i'll geek out about all this stuff it's just i don't know if i'd call it excitement so much as just it's part of my whole world but Mm. it's not something that like all dream about you know what i mean
2: well i guess a better question then is like what do you see as the way forward then because you know kind of like um it's always hard to see right like what's going to be the next thing that kind of advances music technology and what's going to be the next thing that advances sound design and, and all of that kind of stuff and almost always i think we've we've kind of felt like we've hit the limit with it right and then somebody does something new and then somebody does something new again and so on and so forth but i mean obviously there's a cap, like a capacity on how far we can go with, uh, with media, right? Because, you know, our eyes only have a certain amount of spectral content. They can see our ears only have a certain amount of spectral content they can hear mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So it's like we do have a sort of arbitrary upper limit there. Oh, uh, sorry, not arbitrary, um, non yeah, <laughs> like a, f- yeah. a finite upper limit. Uh, and um, so I guess like, uh, yeah, a better question might be like, what do you see as the next things forward? Uh, that are heading towards that upper limit.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's actually brilliant that you put it that way because it is ultimately down to that, isn't it? it it's kind of like, yeah, our ears can, you know, they do have that upper limit. And at the end of the day, we have to work around that. You know, that's kind of the the bottleneck. It's like with our eyes, right? I mean, they're starting to release 8K screens now and at some point it'll be 16k or who knows but do can our eyes actually operate at a at a you know level where that can be discernible i don't think so so then it remains to be seen how those technologies will benefit us or you know whatever how how they're going to actually manifest themselves and i think the same remains to be seen with audio because we're still working within paradigms that were established 40 years ago you know, with multi-tracking and everything else or however many years ago, the point being, these are not new ideas. Um, So, but we're integrating new ideas in the form of things like plugins or idea like a DAW getting, you know, like for example, Bitwig implementing the kind of almost like a max MSP kind of backend Mm -hmm. modular thing into their framework. I think that's cool stuff, but is it really innovative? I don't, I don't, necessarily think it's super innovative i think it's just an evolution
2: you're and talking I, I th- about the the grid
0: yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah i've been finding that to be um not not so much innovative but cool i like the evolution uh, or the um the implementation and the the prevalence recently of uh stuff like vcv rack and reactor blocks in the grid mm-hmm. i think it's pretty cool i think that stuff's
0: really cool and i think that's kind of where we are now as far as how things are sort of evolving is that more and more people are getting into hardware, but also modular stuff and figuring out how to kind of integrate all of it and all of these platforms like, you know, reactor blocks and things that are kind of becoming more and more popular um, seem to be, sorry, that was my little ring there. Uh, They seem to be the direction things are kind of going in now, but whether that's the big leap that you know, you're kind of talking about, I I don't necessarily think it's, it's that. I don't know what it would be, to be honest, because you kind of got to think about it from like a technical standpoint, too. We're really only capable of doing whatever the computer technology allows us to do.
2: Hmm.
0: But then beyond that, the computer, like I have an 18-core machine here, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything because it's only really capable of doing whatever the software, you know, kind of that interacts with that machine is capable of and so really it's down to like okay what are developers going to think of next and that comes down to scientists because the DSP isn't made by guys like us it's made by people with PhDs you know and so it's it's almost like looking at at looking to that part of maybe academia or the scientific kind of community to bring those technologies to fruition and then slowly they'll those kind of trickle into music and music technology and and we have yet to see how that will impact the tools that we're using but it's all really exciting and intimidating too because as a plugin company I'm always thinking Thomas and I are always talking about like well how long can we really go on making these plugins like that's one challenge it's kind of like the music too I'm sure you're asking yourself like how many more tunes can I write really Yeah, at some point
2: it it feels like you're doing the same thing over and over again for sure.
0: Yeah, and it's with the sample packs too. I mean, I try to keep it pretty diverse, but I don't know how many more years I can keep that up. So then it's also that concern is also coupled with, well, what if some big thing comes along that totally changes how we make music or, uh, you know, things like that. So I, I try not to dwell too much on that. And not to try, try not to look too far into the future and just kind of figure out like, what can I do now? What can I do within the next two years? And then stay kind of nimble so that I could pivot and go in a different direction if necessary. As an entrepreneurial person, I'm always kind of thinking about my company that way too. And it's important too, I think, because anything could change at any time. What if we didn't have access to the internet? Obviously, that's a, you know, bigger question than just my company, because it would, the whole world would fall apart. But you got kind of got to ask yourself, like, we're all just happily, in an almost naive way, kind of going about our lives, depending entirely on this internet that ties everything we do together. What happens when you take that out of the equation?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I had a guy on here recently, who he was a computer scientist and a uh he was saying that these these giant cables that like run basically from America to Europe under the ocean that carry the internet between the countries and sometimes sharks attack them and sometimes it just like blows out the connection between America and Europe
0: wow yeah i mean it's just the f- like how fragile it is when you start to think about that
2: it really is yeah i mean if a shark can just bite a cable and you lose internet between the two <laughs> biggest continents or whatever like,
0: i know yeah pretty big w- deal well, one one other thing that I wanted to talk about too, that's kind of in in this uh, sort of on 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 topic is that when I got into this and and maybe this applies to you to some extent too, there was no internet, you know. So mm. I I was a kid and I was interested in recording and audio technology and I basically had to just find that stuff wherever I could. So I at the time I was living in the East Bay, In the San Francisco Bay Area, so about 30 minutes outside of San Francisco, and I would take the BART train by myself into downtown San Francisco on Market Street, where they had a Virgin Megastore, and at the top floor they had like a magazine uh, shop, and it was the only place that I could find sound on sound and future music. And I bought them every month and I would take the train out there myself to go get them. And that's and and then I would stop over on Mission where Guitar Center was, which consequently I wound up working at in the late 90s. But I would go and go to the, the pro audio department where they didn't even have anybody at the time that was like really well versed with the synths or anything else. It was like an accessories guy that they stuck in there that knew a little bit. I'd mm-hmm. pick his brain and then spend a long time in there just playing everything and that's how I learned that and user manuals, magazines and user manuals. You know, there's no internet. There's no, all my friends were in the same boat. So I was always the more knowledgeable one because I took those, made, made the effort to, to, you know, learn those things. And then I would kind of help teach all of my friends. Um, but that was a, such a different time. Now you have an incredible amount of resources, even just like, I always, kind of point people to your series. I mean to in, in my honest opinion, I'm not saying this just to like butter you up. If anybody wanted to learn how to make electronic music, they have a one-stop shop at your website.
2: That's kind of how, yeah, that's what I've been trying to make it. And I'm, I'm still continuing to try and think about making it more that way because I've, I have a giant hole in my website, I think, which is like, I don't have a beginner's course. Like if you've never seen a digital audio workstation before, like what's going on. Sure. So I need to, yeah. I need to make that course, but um, <clears throat> yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I definitely try to try to see it that way. But the funny thing I think is that, like you were saying, when, when there was no internet and I when i got into electronic music and stuff there was definitely internet but um information was pretty limited right like the uh, uh for electronic music stuff anyway like online you could um go to like the dogs on acid forum or something like that for drum and bass knowledge or uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you could go to like you know some glitch hop forum or something like that there was like not a lot of places to get good information Um, so it's just a lot of people like figuring stuff out and just trading information with friends and stuff who are like trying to learn the shit at the same time. And then I'd be like, oh, I figured this out. And then a friend of mine would be like, oh, but I figured out how to do it a different way and (laughs) so on and so forth. Um, and that was, that's cool. But I feel like these days there's like nothing left to the imagination. You can get everything you want to know out of YouTube, um, without paying a cent for anything and you can get it immediately you can get a fucking degree in audio engineering on youtube at this point you can um, yeah you can get a degree in almost anything i think at this point off youtube but uh, it's almost that uh amount of information though i think that kind of turns people off it cuz it's like too overwhelming there's too much mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's i think the the thing that people need now is just a way to sort of whittle it down into a focused kind of linear path in which, you know, cause like you go to YouTube and, and Google Ableton tutorial and like a million tutorials are going to come back. Right. But right. it's tough to tell like where you should start and like which linear path you should take to be able to figure it out. So I guess that's where like more curated educational content comes into it.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think you, yeah, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you don't want a beginner to jump into something even it, which I guess could be considered fundamental, but like what is signal-to-noise ratio, you mm. know? Well, maybe maybe don't just dive without any knowledge into a tutorial about that when there are a lot of other fundamental things that maybe you should know beforehand. So, mm. yeah, I think it's just about, and, and teaching gave me a pretty good grasp on how I, I would approach, you know, teaching electronic music or audio engineering to somebody. But again, that's not really what I want to do. But I I agree with you that it's like if I did, it would be totally structured where it does have a sort of a linear, you have to take a linear approach, just like if you're studying mathematics or something like that, where it is kind of cumulative and you have to assume that people don't have knowledge of things that you take for granted.
2: Right. Well, I guess my high level point is that like... um, In some ways, it almost seems like the way that you learn things is the easier way to do it because you're forced into a linear path based on limited information, right? Like it's kind of like you only had access to two magazines a month and a guy at a a guitar center. So it's kind of like you had to just learn the information that was available to you. So I think in that way, it's like maybe a more manageable amount of information at a time. Ours. Oh, totally. Yeah. And no, over a long, like...
0: over a long period of time too, somebody yesterday asked me how, how I did it or how I got established as a sound designer. And part of my answer was, well, because I'm, I've been doing this for like 30 years, dude, you mm-hmm. know, you have a really long time frame over which you gain an incredible amount of experience and knowledge that simply can't be boiled down to two or three years. Right. And if you're two or three years deep just embrace the fact that it's going to take quite a while for you to get up to speed because it just takes time. You only have so much capacity to understand this complex information and then turn that on its head and do something creative with it, which is really mm. a very challenging concept if you think about it. Taking all of this yeah. really, really highly technical stuff and then making it into something fluid and creative.
2: <laughs> right. Well, like kind of creativity. There's a good... Um I'm I'm like a big chess fan. I play chess a lot. My son and, uh, is too. That's awesome. That's <laughs> uh, cool. Do you know what his rating is?
0: No, because he started like six months ago and he's just kind of like doing it by himself and he has a buddy that he's teaching, so they constantly play. But I'm just shocked that a nine-year-old is like into chess and he totally discovered it on his own and and taught himself and it's it's crazy. But anyway, please go on. <laughs>
2: that's awesome yeah so i guess um gary kasparov is like was the world master at one point he has a good quote where he says um uh, what is it something along the lines of like to be a master oh sorry to be a really good chess player um or sorry to be a grandmaster like requires you basically just like knowing all the rules and fundamentals and like all the possible like things that can happen and stuff like that mm-hmm. but to be like the world champion like the the best chess player requires you to like know all that plus exactly when to break those rules to to um you know depending on the the exact position or whatever he he like boiled it down to a way better quote than me, and I don't even think sure English but is I, his first language, but <laughs> I got the um,
0: gist, I got the gist that's that's a really good yeah. way of putting it, and it's exactly applicable to what we're talking about, you know whether it's writing music or sound design it's it's not just you know yeah it's 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 that,
2: <laughs> yeah, knowing exactly. Like you said, to have all that complex information and knowing exactly when to use it in like weird ways to to do innovative new stuff with it is definitely like a whole nother set of knowledge to learn, which can't be really learned from books.
0: Yeah, and speaking of learning, like uh, I know I've been complimenting you <laughs> profusely, but I, I I you know just have to say I've learned quite a bit just from watching your videos too. You know, so the important takeaway from that is always be open to the fact that somebody can teach you something, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I guess as an extension that somebody will be better than you, you know, or whatever, like, it's just important to be humble and to understand that there's always something to be learned, even from people, you know, above or, or ahead or behind you, it doesn't matter. Like I've learned some of the coolest stuff from students that were total, totally novice Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, or, or amazing established you know musicians like yourself, like I just look at everything that I can whenever kind of inspiration strikes and try to gain knowledge from every direction that I can. And I think everybody should uh, open themselves up to that concept because it's just gonna be beneficial to you.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I think we should probably end it there cause we've been talking for like almost 90 minutes, but okay. man, it was awesome chatting with you and, um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's it, yeah, it's been a, a pleasure to chat with you and it's, it's like, you know, just incredible to finally connect like this after having known each other for so long. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to, uh, to checking out the full podcast when it, when it airs.
2: Awesome, man. All right. Thanks a lot.
0: <laughs> Thank you, man.
2: Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes, and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, Please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you.